Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Recorded live. Fragments of Silicon, now in convenient visual novel form. I'm not even going to begin picking apart what you said up there because we'd be here all night. <laughs> Look, visual novel form being convenient is an acceptable lie. <laughs> I just, what kind of visual novel would this show be? Uh, I don't, don't ask. know. Something to do with hentai. No. Uh, no. We're, we're, we're not exciting enough for that. Uh. <laughs> anyway, before this conversation goes down... Any more down the path that it's going. Um, welcome to another episode <laughs> of Franklin Silicon. I'm your host, Adam. Joining me, as always, are Ogre, Petty Fan, and Galix. Right. Um, Hello. So let's yep. get straight to the news. Uh, let's Ogre, why don't you go this week? Oh, I'm just really tired today. Did a lot of cooking, grocery shopping, all that stuff. So kind of wiped out. Fun. It's can be exhausting if you really get into it, mm-hmm. which I kind of really have gotten into, so. We've noticed. I even got my own grater and measuring cups and spoons, so. <laughs> yeah. Just let, so us, just, just let us know if your eyebrow starts curling. Uh, no, I was thinking if I start searching for a god that ends up looking like a frog, I think we might be in trouble. Yes, that also. I'm, like, I'm assuming that's a Shippuden thing. That's Toriko. Yeah. Like, A.K.A. Naruto only with cooking. And it's more story. like Fist of the North Star, but with cooking. Yeah, Ogre, you might be <laughs> the only person I know who uh, reads Toriko. Well, there's Naka too, but he's kind of been bad about keeping up on stuff lately. Well, anyway, yeah. we got recordings done mm-hmm. this week. It was just a short, short session, but kind of kind of uh, going through this pretty fast, but that kind of helps when you got a two-game schedule going up. Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of why you drop back down to a two-game schedule, so, you know, you're not spending six months on Majora's Mask. Yeah, but we probably will be spending, spending six more months when Xenoverse 2 finally drops. <laughs> <laughs> and you're playing with a pretty sophisticated guide for Majora's Mask, right, to make sure you get everything in a in an efficient manner? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Actual guide or something from GameFAQ? An actual guide. Uh-huh. I'm a fan. I'm a sucker for players' guides. Yeah, I... Yeah, anyway. Yeah, I kind of... Uh, that 
kind of really about it. Just keeping up on cooking, recording that stuff, figuring out games to do later on, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Minus Xenoverse, which mm-hmm. that was kind of set in stone before that even happened. Right. Yeah. But that was we'll confirmed think, at the end of the first Xenoverse. <laughs> but we'll think about that more when we actually get a release date set up, because oh. 2016 is not a proper release date. <laughs> yeah, and also if you need to get new hardware to actually run it. There's that, too. Um, like, At some point, I'll just have the Bug Petty fan to come over and upgrade my computer completely. And maybe more <laughs> on this next week. Probably. Like. <laughs> Unless somehow 2016 <laughs> is actually just short for, like, February 0, 16, 2016. Or it's one of those weird Dragon Ball uh, dates. The star, star, calendar, star. Anyway, that's it for me. All right, uh, Petty Fan, you're up. Um, well, I've been doing some show-related stuff that I can't talk to till we actually get them nailed down, so that's going to be exciting. Um, impersonal stuff, just been... Uh, and to do some reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, got some yard work done over the weekend. Actually had to pull up the machete and chop down like some tree limbs that were getting in my way while I was trying to mow. Mm-hmm. So took care of those little bastards. <laughs> <laughs> um, Monday I have an appointment to see about if I need to have another sleep study done, which Probably, so that's going to be fun. This is your, what, third one? (laughs) Yep. Oh, dear. And honestly, for me, the sleep's possibly, like, one of the worst experiences I've ever had at a hospital. Uh Uh-huh. Because I have social anxiety. I'm like... So, yeah. You actually have to deal with a person. Fun, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Right. Outside of that, not a whole lot going on since I fixed my overheating issue I was having. I don't know if I talked about this on the show, but, yeah, my computer was basically a toaster for, like, a good day and a half because my thermal compound needed to reapply. I think that might have been mostly during the, uh, or immediately before the, uh, stream that, uh, it's just as well didn't actually get streamed. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, more on Yeah, when your computer's thermal alarm goes off and you try to open up the game you're going to stream, that kind of throws up some problems that need to (laughs) desperately be addressed. But yeah, uh, outside of that, I think I'm done. Uh, so right. Next. Yeah, Galax, you're next. So, I have actually been... We After we reviewed Moon Hunters on um, Friday, I actually ended up playing a good chunk more of it because I found it to be fairly addictive. Um, and I was playing that during doing some other stuff. And uh, I have continued playing Hyrule Warriors Legends. I'm on the... Uh, Great Sea map now, and I'm collecting the uh, many tightly packed uh, costumes and weapons on that map, which is nice to get 
many of the characters I like better but are not part of the actual story up to having the second level weapon. Uh, that's good, so... Um, other than that, I need to play more of Osmafia, which I was slightly derelict in, partially because of uh, Moon Hunters being pretty addictive. If, we could, if I could get the uh, multiplayer to work on that better, I would actually probably retroactively improve my review of it a little. Because it's really fun trying to see different things. Anyway, yeah, I, I fixed the request, uh, the uh, permissions on that Google Doc. Okay, thank you. Other than that, not a whole heck of a lot going on around here. Uh, unexciting getting ready for uh, moving into the summer season. Uh, okay. Anything else? Not really. All right, uh, my turn. Let's see. Um, I think I mentioned this last week. Uh, tree service came around, took care of some branches uh, that might have been that might have posed a proper uh, a problem to various things like windows and cars. And so. And good thing that was taken care of because, well, the fucking rainy season's just started up here. We had a windstorm some years back, and it broke, like, part of our tree, and it smashed into our fence, and it's still been bent ever since. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it was like, jeez, it, it was pretty rainy the past couple of days with, um... I'm not sure it was particularly uh, windy, but, you know, it's like, it's it's starting to get wet out there, and, you know, thankfully, uh, that was all taken care of before any damage could be done. Uh, Let's Mm. see. Uh, Other news, um, been building up for Season 6 on the show. Uh, Let's see. We had the Moon Hunters thing on Friday and Sunday. that didn't really go out go out well because the petty fans problems and the and the game itself was um kind of bad with its online multiplayer. Yeah, apparently some people I, I was looking around online, apparently it works for some people sometimes, but it crashed pretty reliably for us, so that was yeah, I'm made like, it pretty impossible to do like the actual part of the story. So I'm like, so yeah, more on yeah, more of that in the review itself. Um, you know, and that's available now on iTunes and you know, well, we're still not on Google Music yet. Um, yeah, we we still need to jab Mac about that. He keeps saying he's gonna do it, but yeah, it's one of those he's gonna do it like you know glacially. Yeah. Uh, I think that's about it for now. Uh, more, you know, m- uh, more on the schedule coming up at the end of the show. But uh, merrily we shall roll along to the interview portion of the program. And I'm sure this is what people have been waiting for. You know, for those who are new to our program, which I imagine is going to be a lot of people this week, um, we have a new segment, an interview segment, and then we have a topic of discussion. Um, so for those who aren't aware, our guests this week are Bob Pickett and a good hero from Manga Game. <laughs> uh, it's, it's John Robert Pickett, actually, but uh, yeah. Oh, okay. I go by Koryu Online, so that's what I, probably a lot of our fans at Manga Gamer probably know me as. Um, and that's what you can find me by on Twitter, 
Koryu underscore. It's K-O-U-R-Y-U-U underscore. Um. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so where to start? Where to start? Uh, let's see. Well, uh, at the top of uh, any inter- given interview, we usually like to ask um, how you got interested in video games in the first place. <laughs> uh, well, I think in my case, I don't even really remember know what to say because I remember way back when I was little I had played like a few games on the Atari at like the the houses of friends and people I knew um, and I really liked playing arcade games things like Pac-Man, Galaga uh, all the old classics and from there I just kind of as I grew up moved from like Nintendo to Sega to Playstation and just kept gaming the whole time so in a way I kind of grew up with video games so, I can't really say what the first point would be other than that. I'm like, not an uncommon story we hear on this program. I mean, you know, we've heard you know, various entry points at various um, uh, generations, you know, going all the way. We do get a lot of people, Atari and all that stuff, you know, some even earlier than that, uh, a fair bit later. And, uh, um and jumping off of that question, um, when did you get uh, professionally interested in video games? Uh, professionally interested in video games was actually probably closer to my college years. Um, growing up as a kid, I always thought that I was going to be a veterinarian. Uh, and then I got to college, and animal anatomy didn't pan out. <laughs> so... <laughs> After So I was sitting there in college trying to figure out what to do now that my life plan was gone. And I was taking uh, Japanese classes at the time, and I was doing really well in them. And, I mean, I'd always had an interest in games. I'd always had an interest in uh, Japanese language, Japanese culture, anime, and things like that. And so at the end of that kind of soul-searching period, I decided to try and give uh, translation a shot. So I changed my major to Japanese. Uh, I spent a year studying abroad to really work towards it. I got my JLPT-1 certification, and then college was over, and uh, I was out trying to find a job. And a few things led to another, and I eventually lucked into finding Manga Gamer at Otakon in 2009. And they, after uh, talking to some of the representatives there, they eventually hired me like right away. And I started doing a lot for the company. Right. And, well, what did you end up doing for the company in those early days? Uh, Those early days, uh, the company had only been around for about six months. And since Manga Gamer itself was founded by a group of Japanese developers who had come together with the, the intentions and the goals of expanding visual novels and eroge to the Western market, it was really sort of a rough period for the company because the the folks in Japan, a lot of them were uh, native Japanese speakers. Most didn't know a whole lot of English. So they had trouble judging the market, judging uh, translators and the quality of translators. And so there were a lot of problems like that that... Um, well, because I was a fan and because I wanted to see the games 
do really well and reach a wider audience, I had to, um, in some cases it was easier than others. Sometimes I had to really struggle to try and uh, get them to realize and convince them that there were certain ways the market over here would work that uh, weren't the way they were in Japan. Uh, prices were one of them. Uh, getting our Japanese partners used to the fact that the games which sell for 9,000 yen in Japan, which is about $100 here after conversion rate, don't sell for $100 over here. Um, that was like one of the early things that I had to work to change because we wanted the games to be accessible so people could actually buy them and play them and experience them. Uh, getting our quality of our translation and our localization straightened out was one of the big early things. And, of course, uh, marketing was one of the things that I started doing because mostly because at first I really just wanted to promote the games I was working on specifically, which at the time was Soul Link, uh, which we still, uh, I'm sorry, not we don't still sell it on our store. It was recently removed from the catalog. Um, but yeah, I really just wanted to pitch the game that I had worked on and share it with a lot of people. And so that's how I started doing uh, the marketing for Manga Gamer. And since then, I've worn, I don't know how many hats and done how many different things. So. Uh, I mean, uh, quite a lot according to your resume. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing about a small business and a small company is, uh, every, you know, when it starts out, like when I first started in 2009, um, there was me, there, were our, there was our board in Japan, our accountant in Japan, and our owner in, who traveled between Japan and America. But we didn't have a whole lot of other people on staff. So it was a lot of, this needs to be done. No one else is doing it. Okay, I'll do it. This needs to be done. No one else is doing it. Okay, I'll do it. Um, and eventually, as we started working with more people and getting more quality staff, uh, we started expanding and things like that. Like, uh, when I started working on some of the games, I had a friend at the time who I'd, I would constantly be messaging on IM and eventually it reached a point where he was like look, you either need to stop asking me to help you edit these titles or you need to pay me to edit them. So I spoke to our bosses and we hired him. <laughs> uh, and that was how we started having an editor on team and um, eventually we worked with uh, fan translation teams for uh, F and a few other titles, and through that we gained uh, our first beta testers and started setting up beta testing. And so it was a lot of gradual growth as we just sort of dealt with one problem after another. Mm. Yes, I, I think I've heard this story before. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so how many people uh, work at Manga Gamer these days? Oh, these days. Uh, let me see. On marketing, we have myself, we have Goodharo here, uh, we have uh, one of our assistants, uh, Kaitsu, and we have, I think, uh, two other people that help in more limited capacities every now and then. Um, in terms of how many contract translators and editors we have, definitely dozens. 
uh, well over 20, I think. Um, on the admin side, we have we have a couple of different managers now. Um, beta testers, uh, I don't even know how many of those we have at the moment because that's the one position that we always get a lot of volunteers for. So we're always screening people and trying to integrate new people. Some people leave because they move on and do other things. Um, and we have at least three programmers now. I think we might have four. So we've grown a whole lot since we started in 2009. Sounds like it. Now, like, are is everyone based all over the world, or are they concentrated in the U.S.? Uh, so at Manga Gamer, we have our office in Japan, which is our business address that's in Asakusa, Tokyo. That's where our accountant is, our general manager is, uh, our project manager, and I think one of our translators uh, works there out of the office. And that's where we meet with a lot of our clients, our developers in Japan that we localize titles for. Uh, but the actual localization teams are spread all throughout the world. Um, we basically get together and our office, if you will, is basically one big uh, internet chat room <laughs> It's more like 30 different chat rooms for the different projects. Um, but, yeah, so we have people from the West Coast, Central USA, East Coast. We have a few people from Canada. We have a few of our, I think we have a couple image editors and other people working out of Australia. Um, I know one of our uh, image editors is based in, I want to say, Northern Europe. So... It's a lot of fun working with all the different people. Everyone brings something different to the table. So, right. And uh, this was the biggest question. So, do you translate um, these visual novels into just English or into you know like multiple languages like French, Spanish, and whatnot? Uh, right now, our focus is on English. We have yet to do any other languages. Um, that might be an avenue to consider expanding to in the future, but who knows? We're still focusing on English right now. Fair enough. And do you only publish visual novels from Japan, or do you pick up Western visual novels as well? We do pick up Western visual novels. We do support Western visual novels and support them. Uh, one of the things that we really, that I really like about our company is that we are a platform that hosts uh, adult games. So we actually, unlike Steam, we can actually provide developers a platform where they're free to develop and retail the games they want to. They can include a lot of content that might necessarily that might not necessarily make it on Steam. Uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of services have restrictions about what kind of things are allowed that make it hard for people to who do things to get some of their stuff distributed. Yeah, like uh, one com one uh, group that we worked with not too long ago was Lupe Soft. Uh, they made a game called The Menagerie, which focuses on the life of several exotic women in a harem. And so it deals with a lot of the situations surrounding what it's like to live in a harem and to be at the whim of basically a corrupt aristocracy. They just get to have it, take its advantage of 
these women who don't have freedom and how they try and define themselves in that kind of situation. And that's not the kind of story you can really tell on theme where the sexuality and everything is so integrated and crucial to it. Um, and uh, just today, in fact, we also announced uh, our support for uh, Undead Darling, created by Mr. Tired. Uh, their Kickstarter just launched today, so they're trying to earn money to develop that game. Um, and I'm really excited for that. It looks like it's going to be a really fun uh, visual novel slash dungeon crawler featuring cute zombie girls. So, <laughs> Is this your first time supporting a Kickstarter, or have you done uh, others in the past? Uh, in the past, we've been a bit more narrow because we usually want to... Usually we try to wait until the game has succeeded so that we know it's going to get funded. Um, but in this case, uh, they approached us early, well before. Um, they'd done a Kickstarter on their own and nearly reached the goal the first time. So this was their second attempt at the Kickstarter. And they refined their goals, they refined um, their benchmark, and they have much more... to. Pre- uh, much better prototype visuals and things like that to present. Oh, yeah, so, I, I saw that, that, that in, on Crunchyroll today. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and the the guy that heads up Mr. Tired Media, uh, Nick Doer, he actually has a lot of experience in the industry already because uh, he worked in the past in the video game industry before as a an editor on games like Hyperdimension Neptunia, uh, Atelier Tortori, things like that. So, it, with his experience in his past, we know we can, you know, trust him to handle things professionally and, you know, meet goals, meet contracts, things like that. Makes sense. So, we're really excited, yeah. yeah. Right. Now, uh, going back to, you know, uh, to the visual novel thing, um, have you ever had one of those rejected from the Steam platform because of uh, sexual content? Um, thus far, we have not. Um, there are a few games, we've been, we've worked really closely with Valve so far. Um, so, uh, a couple games we've had to, uh, arrange content to make them more acceptable for Steam. Uh, a good example of this would be, uh, Chodengeki Striker and Princess Evangile. Uh, in Shodengeki Striker's case, the adult scenes were about two per heroine and mostly excessive and not necessarily essential to the story. So we worked to cut those, uh, edit a CG or two to make it acceptable for Steam. Um, for Princess Evangile, that was a title that already had an all-ages version in Japan. Mm-hmm. So we adapted the all-ages version for Steam and kept the adult version for sale on our website. Um, and, but recently, we've, we have been working uh, with Valve uh, quite a bit to try and sort of push the, the boundaries of what is acceptable and what we can release and sell on Steam. Uh, our biggest success on this front was Kindred Spirits, which was released uh, this February. Um, which basically is the the first game to feature uncut um, 
sexual intercourse between two women on scene. Right. Um, it's very, it's done very tastefully, and that's one of the reasons that we were able to get it on theme as is. Um, and we also built on our experience and success from that to uh, work on Gotsum. And with Gotsum, we actually went through the ESRB because all of the themes in that are a little more explicit than Kindred Spirit, but not by much. So we wanted to make sure that that would be acceptable. And uh, we managed to get the M rating on Gokmoon from Steam to the game as is. So we were able to put that on Steam too, which was, a really, which was really great for all of us. Our translator was definitely super psyched to see it selling a lot more. And we really hope it continues to sell a lot more. Gokmoon is a great game. Steampunk, Nikola Tesla. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I must admit I haven't played that one. Yeah, like, uh, let's see. Uh, there's so much to cover here. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, like um, you know, I'm like perhaps you might like another visual novel series that you might be known for is the Go Go Nippon uh, series. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like what I. Which is gaining some notoriety. Like it's been featured on, like I think it was on. Was it on Steam Train or Game Grumps? Uh, I think it was Game Grumps. Yeah. Like, and uh, now, uh, do you usually go for you know the sexually explicit uh, visual novels first, or is it a wide mix of things? We generally cover and go for a wide mix of things. Um, like I said at the, the beginning, a lot of our founders are uh, developers of Aerogay. And Aerogay is short for erotic games. So they're games made with sexual content in them. Um, and we pride ourselves in being able to work on those games, sell those games, and bring those games here to the West in America. But obviously, that's not all we do. Um, we do. There's a lot of non-adult games that are also really good uh, in terms of visual novels and great for people to play and experience. Um, most recently, we uh, just this past Friday actually released the House of Fata Morgana on Steam, and that is an amazing uh, horror and suspense. Story. It um, it's set up in a something of a frame story, where uh, you and the, the maid of the house uh, basically go through opening the doors to different stories that take place in the past, um, ranging from about Victorian industrial period era, um, but they span different time periods, and each story that you see about uh, one of the residents who's come to live in the house um, adds a bit more to the story as you experience their tragedy. And it's a game that delves really deep into uh, tragedy, human nature, tribulation, and the, the idea, the concept, and the theme of redemption, uh, even despite the struggles for acceptance and things like that. Um, 
we also recently uh, did Tokyo Babel, which uh, is also on Steam. Mm. And that is another visual novel by Propeller that uh, takes place in a sort of post-apocalyptic world where angels and demons have gathered in purgatory and they're trying to force the gates of heaven back open before the world and everything in it is completely destroyed. Um, So it's a really cool action story and there's just a whole... That's one of the best things about visual novels is that, like novels, it is a medium that can tell a wide variety of stories, a wide cover a wide variety of genres and include different elements. And so we we do take pride in our ability to offer this diversity to everyone. Um and so yeah, we will always continue looking at titles and games in both genres of all different age targets because we want everyone to experience a good visual novel. Um, Have you ever looked at uh, publishing visual novels on consoles or uh, handhelds or uh, even mobile devices? Uh, That is a thing that has been coming up and has seen discussion uh, more often recently. There's a lot of uh, different uh, tasks different processes and things like that involved with consoles. So we haven't uh, started doing anything with it yet. Um, I know for a long time during our initial years, uh, consoles didn't really consider visual novels game here in the West. So it was impossible to even consider back then. But that's obviously that's starting to change now. So who knows? In the future, maybe we will. But Right now, we're focused on PC. Oh, yeah. Believe me, I, I remember, you know, th- there's a lot of series that have been popular in Japan that just, we we would never get, like um, Sakura T- uh, Tyson or mm. Tokiemiya Memorial come to mind. Uh, like, in fact, it was <laughs> a minor miracle that we got the fifth Sakura Tyson game on the PlayStation yeah. 2. And I remember uh, trying to play Tokiemiya Tokimiki Memorial way back when when I couldn't understand Japanese. I think I got some kind of ending where like my best friend walked off with the girl that I was interested in or something like that and I had no idea how I got there. (laughs) I mean, those games were absolutely huge in Japan, but it's like because you know, they were of a genre that was very unconventional for consoles. You know, it's like... it's stuff that fared better on the PC, but even you know, even on the PC, you really didn't see visual novels over here until, well, really recently. Yeah. yeah it's like, but I mean, as you mentioned, like, Manga Gamer is only, what, uh, eight years old now? Uh, yeah. Uh, I think we'll be, I think we're a few months away from being eight years old. Uh-huh. But, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, before we continue on, I would like to speak to Good Haro here for a bit. Uh, she's here. <laughs> uh, hello? 
Well, uh, this is awkward. Oh, uh, I think she's having mic trouble. Uh-oh. Um, uh, the wonders of technology. Yeah. Ah, uh, yes. I'm like, uh, I'm not sure if you're muted or not, or... Your mic might be muted. We certainly had that happen with people before. Yes. I'm like, yeah. And, you know, for those who are listening to the recorded version, this is a live show, so... (laughs) Something, something, screw it, we're doing it live. Yeah. (laughs) Something, something, tech never works when you want it to. Yes. (laughs) It's like, well, when the tech failures happen, it kind of derails the conversation. It's like, it's happened to us before recently like like it like it hit us like what uh last week or two weeks ago technically it mm. happened friday yeah that's what uh, those yeah you know and so well not sure uh, i'm like not sure if Howard is going to be able to get her uh microphone fixed so well, let's see can you hear me now uh, yes yeah, i can hear you yeah. there you are there you are we can right, hear you now great. and that's good all right sorry i thought it was <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Crisis averted. Crisis averted. Yay! At least for now. Yeah. Well, one crisis averted. <laughs> anyway, all right. So, uh, starting off, what is your position as manga gamer? Um. Well, like Kodio, I end up doing a lot of different things. Um. I guess I'm primarily like a freelance translator, and I also do uh, marketing and some website stuff. So a lot of hats. Yep. <laughs> yeah, she's the one that's made uh, all of our recent promo pages. So if you've ever taken a look at any of them, like the uh, one we have for Oz Mafia, that's all been her. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, uh, yeah. Yeah. Saw that. <laughs> yeah, saw that. Uh, well, the other day while I was doing research for the title. Uh. Uh. So, uh, what kind of translation work do you, if any, do you do for um, Manga Gamer? Oh, um, I translate games, and uh, Oz Mafia was one of my projects, and uh, I'm currently working on a secret unannounced project, which should be pretty fun. And, (laughs) and, um, yeah. Yeah. All right, um, so let's focus in on Oz Mafia, since that is the game we are going to be reviewing on uh, Sunday. Um... Were you assigned uh, this project, or is it something you picked out for yourself? Um, I didn't pitch the title originally, but it was in our like pile of games that we had acquired, and I had asked for it because um, I'm interested in Otome titles and uh, games for like women, I guess. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I asked for it, and yeah, that's how I got it. <laughs> yeah. it uh, playing through this game has been an interesting experience because I'm like... And it's, it's going to be a, a bit of a challenge to review, I'll be honest, because I'm like, I can recognize this is, I am not the target, nor I think any of my colleagues are the target demographic here, but I'm like, we do pride ourselves on reviewing games of all sorts. Mm-hmm. If nothing yeah, else, I think we, ha- we each have at least one more Y chromosome than the target, than the intended target audience. <laughs> yeah, that always makes it a little bit difficult. Yeah. But we are also secure enough in our sexuality where we don't have a problem playing a game like Oz Mafia because I'm like, it's... For those who don't know what this particular visual novel is, um, okay, so the premise is kind of bizarre. 
it, it's kind of like it's kind of one of those premises that makes you know. Um, so I'll just lay it out here. You're basically um, playing a girl who's lost her memories, and you're in this land that, even though the game's called Oz Mafia, it, there's not just Wizard of Oz characters there. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a, a literary world. It, it, it's like now, like the framing device is sent around, you know, the 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 Wizard of Oz tropes and. You know, worth noting, they use the silver slippers instead of the ruby slippers because of, well, copyright things. But well, also, oh, no, that, that is the literary origin. Yeah, that's from the original novel. The well, ruby strip slippers were from the movie because it looked better on uh, the big screen with the Technicolor. Yeah, because let's show off our Technicolor. Right, and it, also the ruby slippers are actually uh, owned by, like, Warner Brothers as opposed to the uh, silver slippers, or actually silver walking shoes. But uh, anyway, uh, before we get into a digression over the minutia of the Wizard of Oz, um, you're an amnesiac who gets taken in by the Oz, um, well, Mafia. And you've got a whole bunch of different factions going on here. There's the Grimm faction, and then there's the Oscar Wilde faction, there's the Wolf Gang, um, and so on and so forth. And you've got... uh, Characters like Hansel and Gretel there. You've got uh, Robin Hood. You've got um, uh, Red Riding Hood, and so on and so forth. And I'm like, I, I, I'm like, from what I've read from the promotional materials, the game seems pretty open-ended in what your ultimate goal is. I'm like, because it says, you know, it says you'll eventually be allowed to align with a faction, not necessarily the Oz faction, even though that's about, you know, a good... I'm not sure how much of a percentage, but it's a good chunk of your early interactions with the, all the characters. Like, anyway, as far as, as, far as the question goes, um, was it much of a challenge to bring this game to the English language? Well, I guess I think the hardest thing for me was is that there's just so many um, characters and they all have a pretty unique sort of speaking style and figuring out a good voice for each of them was a little difficult. Um, my editor and I were trying to work out some little like quirks we could add in. Like um, I thought it would be cute to uh, use like the flavor words that they use every so, or every so often um, uh, by drawing from the language of origin for the tale that they were coming from. So, like, the, uh, like, Hansel and Gretel come from German um, uh, fantasy fairy tales. And so they use a few German words here and there, like Danke or, you know, or Freulein and things like that. And just to sort of uh, spice it up and give them a little bit more personality. Makes sense. Makes Certainly sense. Japan is an easier language to add uh, speaking quirks in than English is. Yeah, the original had a lot of, um, like, English words peppered around, and that's sort of what we used instead of um, the English, because it wouldn't really come across as, like, a foreign word or any kind of contrast if we just left it, so. Yeah. Like, I noticed that, like, the, uh, the Oz gang uses a lot of, you know, there's a lot of Italian terminology here. Like, instead of fan- yeah, that, some of that was from the original game. A lot of the Japanese terms are glossed with um, the Italian terms for mafia things, so we just sort of carried that through to the um, Oz family. Hmm. That works. 
And um, how large of a game was this in terms of, like, words or characters? Uh, it's pretty substantial. It would be considered a full-length game. I think it's... I haven't done an actual count, but I think it's probably close to 400,000 English words. That's just a guess, though. It might be it might be a little bit off. It doesn't have, like, very much narration at all, so it might be a little bit lower. Mm-hmm. And uh, were there any, like, space concerns uh, concerning the translation? Uh, thankfully, that's not something we really had to worry about. Um, we had a uh, scripting we were doing in-house this time, and uh, the engine was actually workable enough that we could make adjustments to the character length for each lines and uh, adjust the font. And uh, we spent a lot of time picking out a nice font that looked, um, that was still legible, but looked nice with the world and the setting. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and um, how does the translation process work, at my, uh, you know, in, you know, like, um, is it just you or do you work with another person uh, and then you send it to the editor and so on and so forth? Um, well, generally what happens is you get a copy of the game and you play through it and take some notes and make sure you know what's going on. Um, and then we get the scripts and um, get those set up. Uh, every translator has a different preference, but a lot of us use uh, spreadsheets just to keep things organized and aligned. And so, like, you know, accidentally deleting one thing doesn't, like, shift the whole script off. Um, and we work closely with editors, so it's sort of a paired process where the translator will start working and talking with their editor, and um, frequently they'll go in and start making edits while the translator is working. I mean, not right on top of you, but behind you, and then um, translator and editor discuss things like character voice and tone, and if there's questions on lines or, well, the worst is, of course, like puns and jokes might, like, throw that <laughs> editor and be like, I don't want to do this, you do it, and yeah, things like that. Bad puns are always so much fun and so much terror. (laughs) (laughs) The the Japanese and their puns, they they love those pun and wordplay games. (laughs) I would say puns are probably one of Japan's biggest elements of humor, Uh because you see it used a lot on, like, manzai and things like that, too. So, yeah, it can be... It can be, it's, that's, they're always one of the biggest challenges in localization, I feel. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. Especially because, well, a lot of Japanese puns and wordplay is based off of how kanji is read. Or just things that sound really similar in Japanese that are as a result of different words being borrowed from different places and stuff. Yeah, homophone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Worth noting, Galax here is our uh, linguistic expert. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, well, were there any other, not just difficult concepts to get across, but, well, um, for those who don't know, like, certain, like cultures will have uh, not just, like, um, words, but entire concepts that are completely foreign to uh, other languages. And I've seen this come up in, like, other translation um, discussions. Was there anything like that in Oz Mafia? 
actually there was a little bit, which was kind of surprising given the setting. Um, one of the difficult things is early on in the game, there's a lot of reference to things like politeness levels and Japanese honorifics, which don't really jive with the setting at all, since it's sort of a European fantasy setting. So we had to work pretty hard to figure out a way like, to solve all these weird little issues that kept popping up. Where it's like, oh no, he used Kuhn, and then we changed it. But you can't really just leave it in a setting like this because it would be a bit awkward and sort of, again, not work with the setting so well. So we had that issue. And then there was another issue with a character who the main character somehow mistakes his gender and is confused about this for a while. And in Japanese, it's very easy to avoid pronouns. So there's no, like, none of the narration contradicting what the main character is thinking and clearly revealing that she thinks that because nobody realizes right away. But in English, we were so pronoun heavy and a lot of um, like uh, terms of uh, like honorifics in English and stuff are um, gendered. So it was it was a bit difficult to work around that. But I think we got it working well enough. So. Mhm. Yeah, I imagine, especially if you're dealing with like even if you're, if you're dealing with like uh, crime families and stuff, I imagine politeness and exactly how polite do you have to be to this person so that they don't get really mad at you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> is an issue that would come up. Yeah. That, that, that's something that makes sense in context, though. Oh. Uh, let's see. So, uh, was there anything that was surprisingly easy to bring over? Like, you, you thought you were going to have a big I- issue with, but uh, it turns out not the case. Hmm. Well, I don't know if it was easy, but I think probably one of the most fun things was uh, one of the characters, uh, Kidia the Scarecrow, he has a lot of really, like, biting comebacks at some of the characters and those were always kind of fun to translate where he comes up with like you know a creative way to tell Karami to go kill himself mm-hmm. and that that was fun so <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. and uh, let's see um, did you have to do anything with like the voice acting um, not a whole lot uh, since we don't dub our titles or anything like that um, it's usually not too much of an issue uh, Osmafia is only about 70% voiced, or at least the original PC version, which is the version we have. The later Vita port um, added some more scenarios and fully voiced the game, but um, so the version we have is only 70% voiced, which caused a little bit of issues for the testers initially because some of them thought it was a bug, but it was not a bug. That's just how it is. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I, I suppose this leads to a question that I've been wondering about. Uh, how do you beta test a visual novel? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, we have different approaches for each of our games, depending on sort of like the game structure. Like some games are more linear, so it's pretty much just read to this point until like, you know, by this date and, you know, make your edits to the scripts. And it's usually just about like catching typos or display errors or, you know, finding like issues with menus and things like that. Yeah, that can um, with proofreading and copy more, editing. Yeah, it's basically, yeah, like copy editing or like last chance, like check to make sure like nothing stupid got through. And um, sometimes we also use them as sort of like a, a test audience. So like even if a tester might not, like their suggestion might not be useful, it's clear that they didn't understand a line. And so then sometimes the translator and editor will go back and look at it and we'll be like, well, if this isn't getting through, maybe the general audience won't understand it either. So we should probably make adjustments. Um, with games that have more complicated routing or game mechanics, um, sometimes we uh, change the way we um, handle the testing 
to make sure that we get, you know, bugs and routing issues sorted out in there too. But the main focus, because the text heavy genre is uh, catching text errors. So, yeah. Yeah, I think for, I think like for Tic Tac, we had a debug build created by our programmers so that people, that our testers could actually play with the flags and make sure all the events triggered properly because that had a lot of, Tic Tac had a lot of different routes that could activate or not activate based on choices you made that influenced uh, meters that would basically swing back and forth. Um, and then in uh, one of our other recent titles, Beatblades Haruka, which has a lot of different gameplay because it's something of a, a raising sim where you train the ninjas to fight against other ninjas. And so we had to like test all the scenes, make sure none of the scenes bugged out, and even with uh, games where it's mostly just text, if we, if we have to port them so that they'll work in English, then we still need our beta testers to sort of keep an eye out and do a couple of things here and there to see if they can't break it and cause crazy bugs because sometimes, sometimes that'll happen with a port. You forget a uh, sprite display or you forget a sound display or the, you changed one thing and now it doesn't quite uh, respond properly to what you want it to do. And so it's or a lot of that you, kind of... If you skip through something, then something else doesn't load properly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I feel... Actually. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, we actually find sometimes bugs that were in the original Japanese build that never got fixed in the Japanese build, so we end up sort of doing some retroactive bug testing on the original games, too, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Can you uh, any examples bring to mind? Um, I'm not sure if we're allowed to talk about specifics, but there were a few games where like critical lines and things never actually ended up displaying in the original version. So some of our games are arguably a little bit more complete than the original Japanese version. <laughs> yeah, I know when it came to to bug testing, I remember a couple of bugs that have been a lot of fun to deal with because. Um, when you're still when you're using the original Japanese engine, sometimes there are decisions that were made for that engine specifically because it's a Japanese engine. Like we had one title in, in the past where the where the semicolon was signal that the following line, the following strings was a comment and should not be displayed or done with anything with. Which is fine in the Japanese language, which does yeah. not use semicolons, and somewhat more problematic in English, where they are not and are used. Exactly. And uh, one of the games that I worked on in the past, Deardrop, we had a very fun game-breaking bug, where there was a one line about uh, fairly early on in the game, where there was where I had to use a colon in the middle of the line because of the way it worked in English. And this broke the game. It made it so that while you could play past the line and the game would continue to play fine, if you made any saves, the saves would fail to load because the it couldn't process that line when it tried to load your save. And it because turned it would out be in the back script or whatever. It turned out that it was because in that particular engine, the first semicolon in a line designated the name tag for the line 
So instead of a like 10, 16 character name, it was processing a sentence and a half as the oh. name tag. And it was overflowing capacity for the name tag, and so it couldn't render it. And the way we fixed it was to just add a colon to the front. Because sometimes it's just that easy. <laughs> sometimes it's just that easy. <laughs> oh, dear. All right, so um, how long did it take uh, for Osmaki to get translated? Oh, let's see. I think it was it was almost a year and a half, I think. Um, so a lot of that was my fault because I was doing a lot of other stuff for the company at the time, too, so <laughs> it ended up slowing me down quite a bit. Um, my previous game that I worked on, which was just a teensy bit shorter... I think I translated in like three and a half months, so it it really kind of depends a lot on circumstances and things like that. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. It's a project projecting, and um, uh, another yeah. thing I wanted to ask is, uh, what determines the prices of each visual novel? Like, for example, Osmafia here's uh, thirty four ninety nine, and uh, there's another one for uh, nine ninety nine and five ninety nine, and so on and so forth. Um, it uh, depends on factors. Uh, we usually try to reflect the length and the price, so longer titles cost a little bit more. But um, yeah, because localization. Sorry, go ahead, Corey. No, no, yeah, because yeah, because the biggest cost for us on the production side is localization. So the more text there is to translate, the more it costs us to produce, and the more we have to earn back in order to make a profit on the project. So that's why length is one of the the biggest thing for price determining, but we also consider other things like production value. Like, um, one of our titles on Steam, Eden, is only about eight hours long to play, but it has an immense array of CGs, and it, and it uses so many CGs that it's almost like watching a movie. Um, so we consider factors like that to, to sort of go up a step on our pricing scale. Makes sense. I was wondering if, like, um, licensing was an issue as well. Oh, yeah, everything like that can kind of factor into the cost. It's kind of hard to give a specific, um, like, formula or something because it changes depending on the game and even on what, like, the environment is like when we're planning to release it. Like, some of our Steam titles have slightly lower prices than you might expect otherwise because that's sort of what the Steam market expects versus what the, um, more traditional market for visual novels is accustomed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. All right. Makes sense. And I, I also know, like, we've spoken to other visual novel um, entities out there, and, you know, they mentioned, like, you know, sometimes voice acting is a big deal you know, because of mm-hmm. who voices yeah. what. You know, for those who don't know, um, like, sometimes visual novels will have celebrity uh, voice acting in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually the that's actually the case for our title uh, Tokyo Babel. It has a lot of the like triple A voice actresses like uh, Swashiro Miyuki, uh, Hana Kanazawa, all those big anime seiyu that fans really know and recognize as soon as they hear them. So yeah, the voice uh, the voice acting cost was actually one of the big things in Tokyo Babel for us. Yeah. Right, uh, so we're getting low on time, so just a couple more questions for this session. Um, right, uh, you, 
Uh, I see you're also very active on the uh, con circuit. Like, in fact, I think you have a panel happening uh, a couple of days now. Uh. Yes, we have a panel this Friday at ASEN at 9 p.m. Central. We've got a bunch of different announcements coming out then. So. Mm-hmm. And is that where you typically make new announcements? We do tend to do a lot of our new announcements at conventions. Uh, we usually save our biggest ones for Anime Expo and Otakon, and we definitely have uh, a couple of big ones coming out at each of those conventions this year. So. Makes sense, makes sense. Uh, and let's see, uh, finally, um, is, uh, is there anything you want to highlight as far as games coming out in the future? Uh, well, we definitely, uh, well, I don't want to spoil the one that we're announcing on Friday, uh, but that's going to be a really good one, too. So definitely pay attention to our feeds uh, Friday so you can catch the news as soon as it comes out. Mm. Um, But we do also have a bunch of titles coming out soon. I know I'm nearly finished with the project that I've been working on for a couple years now, the Capo 3. Um, What? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, one of my my coworkers just finished uh, Boku Ten, Why I Became an Angel. So... That's going to be coming to our website and Steam pretty soon, uh, definitely this year. Um, I know fans have been really excited and hoping for uh, more news on Higarashi and Umineko. Uh, we've got some news on that coming very soon. Um, uh, Subipara is definitely a project we want to push because the, the Subipara project is one that we're, we're working with the company Minori and assuming that the, the games continue to sell well on release and go the way they've been going so far, we are eventually going to be able to release the uncompleted chapters of Supipara in English first, before they're ever available in Japan. So that's going to be a really special occasion when it happens. Um, and then we have... Lots of uh, other games like Emovara 2 coming out later this year. All right. Then. Um, well, at this point, I'd like to, you know, if you're willing, we can have you back in a few months uh, to talk about uh, you know, the projects that are coming out around that time, say August 3rd. Uh, yeah, that should work. All right. Well, then. Um, so, um, once again, thank you very, very much for taking time out of your schedules for... Uh, and coming on to the show. Uh, Thank you for having us. (laughs) Indeed. uh, You know, it's like, you know, visual novels is something that we've begun to explore, and it's good to hear a a lot of information about it. Mm -hmm. And and again, uh, fans that are listening now can find us. uh, Our website is mangagamer.com. That's where we sell all of our games. Uh, We have social media feeds on Facebook under Manga Gamer. Uh, our Twitter is just at MangaGamer. Uh, if you want to find me, uh, my Twitter is uh, at Koryu. Um, Goodharo's is also at Goodharo on Twitter. So uh, anyone that wants to come check us out, we're very easy to find. We have a lot of different titles to offer. So definitely check out uh, the wide variety. We have something for everyone. Indeed, and we'll have you back on, on in August. Right, Hopefully you again. <laughs> 
right? Uh, Petty thing, play us to the next segment. Um, so for those who might be new to the broadcast, uh, this is our last segment for the night. Um, this is what we call our topic of discussion, where the panel here talks about a given video game subject that um, has our interest for the week. And mm-hmm. this time around, we're talking about FNV games. And well, the reason we're talking about FNV games stems to our interview with uh, John a couple uh, weeks ago. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, he of Fear Effect and many FMV games. Now, if you haven't listened to that interview yet, I recommend uh, doing so. It's a good background uh, for this. First things first, let's tell the audience what FMV means so they don't have to worry about what we're saying the whole time. Uh, it means flashy Martian, Martian um, virtuosos, right? No, it, well, it stands for full motion video. And what that basically translates to is, you know, real film footage or, Mm -hmm. you know, or or real animated footage. And that's kind of important because there are two phases to the FMV craze. You know, there's probably the portion that everyone knows about, and we'll get to that in uh, in a bit. But um, FMV games really got their start um, in the arcades with the release of Dragon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dragon's Lair is considered to be the first FMV game. It's not hard to see why. Yeah, it's yeah. not uh, filled with you know cheesy actors and you know goofy scenarios and all that stuff. But you know, it's all fully animated like a cartoon was. And it's pretty much literally a playable cartoon, which is what Don Bluth made it to be, basically. Right, and it's uh, it also introduced well. You know, one of the big gameplay styles to FMV games, that is the quick time events. Now, because if Which you, has gone on to become very important in things that are not FMV games. Yes. <laughs> but, I mean, that's literally all uh, Dragon's Lair was. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's like, if you knew what you what you were doing, um, you could theoretically get through uh, uh, Dragon Slayer in a like fifteen minutes, but mm-hmm. that was kind of. But it's hard, and also there's it's mostly just it's hard, but also it's easy. Like even when you know what you're doing, there's still a good amount of reflexes required for some of the things. Knowing is only half the battle, my friends. <laughs> so these are games like, uh, what was it, Heavy Rain that was released a while back, or like the more recent uh, stuff like uh, Game of Thrones and the, the Mine- Tales of Minecraft or whatever it is on Steam. Those kind of games? Uh, they're kind of the modern take on it, but um, you know, w- when people talk about FMV games, um, well, they're thinking of they're thinking of the second way. They're thinking of the Sega CD games. They're thinking of uh, Sewer Shark. They're thinking of Night Trap, uh, Corpse Killer, Tomcat Alley, and so on and so forth. Now, all those ones whose primary retroactive virtue is how corny they were. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
but I think corny would be an understatement, honestly. <laughs> I, I'm like, it's kind of a weird era to explain to the people of today, because, you know. All right. So well, for for a while, full motion gaming was considered to be like the way that games would be in the future, and okay. then it kind of wasn't. I I would say it's comparable to like the VR hype of today, but I also remember that VR hype was a thing in the 90s as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Though they were nowhere near as good as pulling it off. I remember playing the uh, Virtual Boy in Sears. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. but before that, uh, FMV games came out in the arcade, and, you know, they were, la- they were based off of Laserdiscs. Oh. Uh, um, yeah, as, or as us youngins know them, the Frisbees of Death. Yeah. It, it was like, and it, it's worth noting the arcade FMV games because, well, they kind of died out for the same reason that the um, FMV games on consoles died out. Uh, well, some of the same reasons, in that, you know, FMV games were really, really limited in what they could do. You know, it, it was kind of... It's kind of all based on novelty. I, I, I'm like, God, it, it's really, a, it really was one of those. You had to be there to really appreciate what this, because it, it was, uh, you know, you know, when we talked to John a couple of weeks ago, you know, it was all about that pursuit of the interactive experience, that mm-hmm. cinematic movie, and, and you know, we 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 and like I said, we definitely still see this today with you know things like Heavy Rain and you know even The Walking Dead. Yeah, like everything that Telltale does is sort of the descendant of this. Yeah, mm-hmm. or at least of the kind of storytelling and yeah. game progression that was most common in a lot of FMV games. Right, but FMV uh, games weren't just that. It was FMV wasn't a genre so much as it was a style. The style that defined it was live-action video. Like, you know, right. you had real people in, you know, real costumes doing real-ish things. You know. Or, cart- in some cases, it was an- it was cartoons and stuff, but usually that. Right. You know, but, I mean, well, for example, um, the Mad Dog McCree series. You know, one of the games that kind of got the second wave of FMV games uh, going there. Um... You might, you probably encountered the Mad Dog McCree games in some form. They're one of those series that just inexplicably keep showing up. Like, like they release it on DVDs, and um, it was on the at a Wii port. Like, I, I didn't even know that, and I'm one of the people who like played Wii games. I'm like, yeah, like, and well, what the Mad Dog McCree games were were. Um, uh, light gun shooters. Because you know, that's another thing you could program to. Because the, the thing about full motion video that was kind of one of the downsides of the format is that when there's full motion video, there are two ways of interacting with full motion video. One of them is to quickly have, whenever you do something, have it shift to, to a different part of the video, which takes a lot of processing power and is complicated. And the other one is to basically interact with an invisible or, in some cases, visible overlay over the video 
which right. is what you would do for a light gun shooter or something. And there was actually even like a space shooter uh, that uh, was pretty well known, I think, at the time. Uh, I forget the title. Uh, that might be Astron Belt. Another, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that was like the other first FMV game. Like It was like the first FMV game in Europe and Japan. And that one was basically the background was... Uh, the full motion video of space, basically. Right. And then running over it, there was a, uh, like a, basically a really stripped down because of the FMV in the background uh, of a space fighter that was actually, that it was actually a sprite that moved around on the screen and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there were other games that did this, like Microcosm and probably most famously the uh, Rebel Assault game. Mm-hmm. And well, and also sometimes uh, the FMV games would use actual movie footage from actual movies. Um, mm-hmm. One title that came up in our Sunday discussion was Cliffhanger, otherwise known as the North American debut of Lupin the Third. Yeah, because they decided to make an adventure FMV game using uh, clips from Castle of Cagliostro for some reason. Which probably also makes it one of the earlier Ghibli uh, things to come over, too. Uh, by extension. I don't think technically, like, Castle of Cagliostro was Studio Ghibli. Like, it, it was, like, or still done... predecessors as, to them. Well, yeah, it was done by those people, but it was done at that studio kind of deal. Like, I, I'm not, I'm honestly not sure how that works out. But it was also, like, the... One, there was another one that was integrated there. It was, like, the, the Wonder Ca- uh, Momo Castle or whatever. Like, uh, it was used for a few scenes, but, yeah, it was mainly the Castle of Cagliostro. And it's worth noting that they didn't call him Lupin in this game. Or they didn't call anyone by their names. You know. Yeah. The, you know, and that wasn't just because, well, back in the day, um, you know, copyrights would keep um, Lupin from being Lupin. Because, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, not to get into it too much here, but, you know, Lupin the Third was based off a character called Andre Lupin. Yeah, Arsène Lupin. Yeah. Uh, by I forget who it is, but he's a French art author. I think mm-hmm. it was roughly the counterpart on the other side of the law to Sherlock Holmes, and that he was a dashing gentleman thief thing. And uh, unlike some characters, the estate of the author was rather protective of the name. Yeah, to say that the the estate hated. Uh, the Lupin the Third franchise is kind of an understatement, you know. But you know, we don't have, really have time to go into that whole sort of business. The upshot is, you know, Lupin would be known as usually Rupon or the Wolf. Mm-hmm. Here, which is ne- roughly what it means. Yeah, here he's neither, mainly because well, they just didn't know or they didn't care. You know, like like fuck, Goemon's just known as Samurai. In this one. Hey, my favorite is G- uh, Dice K. Jigen, who is just Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> which isn't even a very like, gangster name, which... Yeah. Like, at least Lupin gets Cliff, which works into the cliffhanger game mm-hmm. name. <laughs> but Jigen is just Jeff. And as much as I probably offend everyone named Jeff, that is not a name that I associate with the hard gangster-looking gunman for hire that is Daisuke Jigen. <laughs> the man who will never miss a shot as long as he's wearing his hat. 
I forget the, uh, what they did. They name Fujiko at all? I don't even know if she showed up in that whole thing. They didn't say, but yeah, right. It couldn't be a worse name than a uh, peak. Two peaks like Mount Fuji, which is what her actual name is. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, um, probably where FMV uh, stylings had their most success was in the PC. Um, like, um, most notably, FMV cutscenes were used in the later Wing Commander games and later uh, and the Command and Conquer franchise. You know, and you also had uh, many successful FMV adventure games um, from Phantasmagoria, um, like Gabriel Knight dabbled in the medium. Uh, probably most notable is the Tex Murphy series. You know, uh, like, so much so that um, even the most recent releases of the Command and Conquer and Tex Murphy games uh, use FMV footage, which is really, really rare in this day and age. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, even though you can you can have FMV uh, footage in your, and we still get them. Uh, like a good example of a modern. Um, game that uses FMV that isn't a legacy franchise is a game called Her Story. I'm not sure if anyone else here has played it. I have not even uh, heard of it. The name vaguely rings a bell, but the fact that the name rings a bell surprises me. So I don't think I actually remember it. Like, I, it's an adventure game where you're looking at a bunch of um, FMV clips. You're try- It's a murder mystery kind of deal. Now, uh, that makes sense. You know, and, you know, there were others, uh, you know, there's the Sherlock Holmes Consultant Detective series, and, and just on and on. And, you know, but unlike a lot of adventure, you know, unlike a lot of um, uh, other genre-specific FMV games, like, these tend to be better sometimes, you know, depending on the acting. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, Harvester is still a game that people should play today. You know, I, like, as opposed to, say, like, let's say, Sewer Shark. Uh, I'm like, one of, kind of the, what made FMD games bad. You know, probably the most famous is Night Trap. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, Night Trap was infamous for being one of the games, uh, you know, kick-started the ESRB and got the whole moral panic over video games started. Because it, because it pictured gasp images of young girls in occasionally like uh, pajamas and stuff. I'm like, and like stuff, bad stuff could happen to them if you played well, the like game There was badly. like one one shower scene I think. Yeah, and, and by shower scene had we don't mean like a girl naked in a shower we mean like girl like getting ready to get in the shower pretty much. Even for the time period, it was pretty tame. It's just you know you didn't you know you didn't really see this in a video game. Before. Yeah, video games at the time were still con- considered children's toys. Mm-hmm. It's like you know, like we talked about this a few years ago in our uh, discussion about the ESRB. But I'm like you know this was kind of the this was kind of the um, awkward puberty of video gaming in general. You know, and you could see it in its like rebellious phase. You know, because, the, you know, 
as opposed to like you know I could you could squint your eyes and sort of see where they were coming from with like Mortal Kombat and Doom. These were really really gory games and had adult themes and all that stuff. You know, Night Trap. This barely rates a PG thirteen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, if you've ever seen a let's play of it or anything, or even a review, you can get a pretty good idea of what's in it. It's, I mean, aside from the camp value taking away from any particular shock value that it would have otherwise had, it's also just not that that scary. It's if you actually like, follow the plot. It's almost it's pretty much a B movie kind of thing. Uh huh. And, and yeah, it's like you're basically watching a B movie and. You know, the actual gameplay is, well, you're looking at a bunch of cameras and you've got to find where the vampires are and, you know, hit the button at the right time. I forget, do they actually outright call them vampires? Probably not, but they're vampires. I don't think so. I think they kind of, like, skirt the whole thing. Uh, I'm like... I wasn't sure if they're supposed to be, like, vampires or, like, cultists or what, but it's... They're I, yeah. vampires, but they're vampires with a different name. Yeah. Not vampires, but they're fucking vampires. Yeah, so... I'm going to... Uh, I'm just going to call them vampires. Okay. Yeah. I'm like... And... Yeah, it, it, it's like... The B-movie is pretty much what a lot of these games were. You know... Yeah, for every good game you've mentioned there a bit ago, I just keep thinking... Virtual Highlight. <laughs> and then I curse Pro Jared for ever introducing us, reintroducing us to that game because, wow. Yeah. I hope someone's in a nice pit of hell for that. Indeed. Uh, anyway, so. Yeah. I suppose the question beckons is, you know, why did the SMB craze not pan out? Well, I think think that's one of the first reasons to think about why it didn't pan out, is why it was a good idea, why people thought it was a good idea in the first place. And I I think a lot of the initial appeal of it was that optical media, which is what it was born on and grew on, was really specialized at visual and audio recording data. Yeah, you have to make a comparison between what was Dragon's Lair versus Pac-Man or Donkey Kong in the arcade. Yeah, also, you could get really good quality, theoretically, video and audio in full motion, because full motion video is basically when it's encoded as, like, a video as it would be for a TV. You could get, theoretically, you could get really higher quality video for that than you could through the early 3D graphics that they had or through sprite work alone. Right. So one of the things that really sort of killed the whole idea of full motion video was when first sprites and then 3D stuff got good enough that suddenly the grainy quality reduced full motion video was no longer really that much better. Right. Uh, well, a big part of it turns out to be Sony. Like, you know, if you recall back in the interview, um, you know, uh, it was mentioned that Sony didn't allow FMV games on their platform. You know? mm-hmm. And, and um, keep in mind, FMV games were on the downswing anyway because, well, they were shit. 
usually the FME games were shallow or just the worst thing ever. Well, it's really hard to get an in a deep uh, experience of play when you're dealing with uh, shifting between video streams or just dealing with an overlay yeah. and having to, as if that was the There's world. There's just no experience. Like, uh, I'm sorry. It's just I played that game a lot as a kid, and it's just fucking bad. Even today, I remember just how bad it was with the impossible game design and just like some people really like that kind of hokey acting. I do not. Yeah, and you know. Fortunately or unfortunately, this is one of those eras of video games that's kind of slowly fading away because, you know, the systems that the FMV games were mostly programmed for, you know, were like the Sega CD or the 3DO or the CDI, you know. They were all those games that, all those systems that used CDs as a big selling point that did not make up for their ridiculously high price points. Yeah. Or, uh, and the ones before that were, like, on Laserdisc, and, like, good luck finding something that will play a Laserdisc nowadays. Yeah. Or the PC, um, a lot of them were encoded to work on 3.1 specifically. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and we don't really have time to go into what a Titanic piece of shit 3.1 was. <laughs> anyway, um, so... I think I'm about to do it for our discussion on FMV games. You know, uh, especially since, uh, yeah, we are having MSP this week. Um, yes, we've had so, the word for Mac, and the word is that uh, he has things to say about things. Yes. Oh, boy. I'm just like... This is going to be fun. Yeah. Okay, well, so, as usual, thank you for joining us. You know, um, be sure to tune in for MSP happening um, right after this. Um, Max going to go off on the new Ghostbuster movie. I'm like, and I'm kind of dreading that. And may God have mercy on our souls. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, but anyway. So coming. Why up, is something bad going to happen at the bottom of my feet? Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, uh, coming up on the um, Fragments of Silicon schedule, um, we actually got a very busy week ahead of us. Um, this Sunday, we've got two reviews to do. Um, first up, we're reviewing Oz Mafia, of which we just did an interview for. And we are also uh, doing um, Life Goes On. Um, the director's cut, basically. Um, goes on done to death is yes, the sir. name of it because yeah. you know it sounds funny when you say it that way. Yeah. So this was a puzzle platform game that came out a few years ago from a company called Infinite Monkeys, and they just revamped it. Uh, it came out just yesterday. I admit I haven't had time to play this because you know I've been playing the other game, but I mean that's kind of what I was planning to do on uh, like tomorrow. So here's an important question. Are these two games thematically similar enough that you'll put them in one in one uh, track, or are you going to split it up again? I'm going to split it up, of course. Like, okay. Uh, like, there's, there's no connecting thread between the two games. 
Like, in fact, I, I'm trying to give you a glare right now. <laughs> anyway, um, so next week we it's also we got a, a Tuesday interview. Um, we're going to be welcoming Peter De Jong, and um, this is a name I'm going to probably mangle. Um, White's Comp of Code Glue. Um, they are a Dutch company. Um, you uh, probably know them best, if you know them, for the mobile version of Terraria. But they've done other games like uh, Rocket Riot and Ibn Ob. And also happening on Wednesday... Um, Stephen Akana from Bandai Namco Entertainment is joining us once again, and we're going to be talking about One Piece Burning Blood, and probably a bit of Project X Zone 2. You know, I'm looking forward to it, and we hope you are as well. So, uh, until next time, I wish you good gaming. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.